Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Ava. And I'm Beth. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience to psychology whilst talking about our own personal experiences. This week on the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Hongbo Yu. Dr. Yu is currently an assistant professor in the Psychological and Brain Sciences Department at UC Santa Barbara. And full disclosure, he's also one of my advisors, so I'm a little bit biased in thinking that his research is really interesting. But I do think this was an interesting episode. We talked about guilt and its neural signatures and how he uses multivariate pattern analysis to look into guilt. We looked at how guilt interacts with eye gaze and also how guilt has these two competing behavioral tendencies, avoidance and trying to make amends. So my name is Hongbo Yu. I'm assistant professor here at UCSB, Psych and Brain Science Department. First of all, I want to say that I'm a big fan of this podcast. <laughs> I, I listen to almost every episode. And I also, when I teach undergraduate courses, I sometimes assign relevant episodes to my students, which serve as a very nice introduction to the relevant topic that we'll be talking about. So really appreciate your effort. A really good podcast. Thanks, Hongbo. In terms of our research, so our lab adopts a quite interdisciplinary approach to study a wide range of topics related to social emotions and moral cognition. So social emotions include, for example, guilt, gratitude, which we'll be talking about later in this podcast, moral cognition, such as how people perceive blame and blamer, and how moral judgment influences compassion and help. In terms of methodology, we, as I mentioned, we take a really interdisciplinary approach. So our methodology range from behavioral experiment, neuroimaging, and sometimes we also compare people with certain psychiatric conditions, such as autism spectrum disorder, with neurotypical participant, in terms of, for example, their response to harm and social interaction. More recently, we also look into history. So we take advantage of the development of computational linguistic tools and the historical linguistic corpus to study, for example, the historical evolution of moral concept, emotions, and so on. So as you can hear, there's a lot going on in the lab. There's a lot of work on different types of emotions and also morality using all these different types of approaches. We only have about an hour, so we're probably not going to be able to hit everything. So we thought that we would focus in today on your research, looking at guilt specifically, and then maybe we'll throw in a couple of other lines of research. But since we're going to be mostly talking about guilt, I wanted to first ask, what really does it mean to study guilt in a social psychological context? How do you operationalize it? And what does it mean exactly when you're talking about guilt Mm. in psych? So for any, I will say for, for most of the emotions, The definition of the term itself is not an easy thing, although it seems like a a beginning of your inquiry, but it's almost the ultimate goal. Like how how we define an emotion is a combination of almost everything we know about that emotion. So for guilt, it's really hard for me to, to give a definition because the definition itself will assume a lot of theoretical commitment already. So for example, when we say guilt, when we talk about guilt as a discrete emotion, we already assume there are discrete emotions. But we need to keep in mind that not all emotion theorists agree that there are discrete emotions. So, for example, 
from more from a more constructionist point of view, emotion term is more like the concept of color. Like if you go deep down into the physics, the colors are just conscious interpretation or culturally constructed interpretation of continuous variable, like the wavelengths of light, right? So perhaps these cultures have one way of defining color terms. Another culture may have different. Even within the same culture, different individuals may have a slightly different definition or preference for where pink star, where pinks end and where purple stars. So we can understand emotions in this manner too. Like when we talk about guilt, people always ask the question, what's the difference between guilt and shame? Mm -hmm. So to me, it's a very similar question as what's the difference between pink and purple? To some extent, there are some consensus, but again, there's a lot of individual differences and cultural difference. Okay, so that's a long-winded answer, but to to study anything empirically, we do need to start mm-hmm. with an operationalization. So for me, the working definition of guilt is an emotional state elicited by violating or not fulfilling a norm or a standard that the person themselves intrinsically value or truly believe. And then we can apply this definition to many different instances. So for example, the most widely used scenario of guilt is interpersonal harm. So when you harm another person, either physically or emotionally, people tend to feel guilty. And here the underlying assumption is that we, most of us have the intrinsic belief that we should not harm another person, at least in an ordinary circumstance. But th- this definition doesn't constrain guilt to interpersonal situations. So we also talk about guilt when we violate our own standard or goal. For example, if I'm, I have a goal of working, let's say, 60 hours per week, but I want to... Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> when I only work 20 hours, I may f- say that I feel guilty because what I did for short of what I value. Mm-hmm. So in that circumstance, I may also genuinely feel guilty. So guilt doesn't necessarily involve an interpersonal context, but based on my reading, most of the literature so far about guilt has primarily been focusing on interpersonal instances of guilt, which makes sense, which has, especially in social psychology, we are interested in social interaction. So it seems like when you're talking about the way that we might think about guilt, that a lot of it has to do with maybe harming someone in the context of social neuroscience or psychology, which sounds kind of crazy maybe from the outside Mm -hmm. that you're making people harm or at least make Mm -hmm. them think that they're harming someone else. But this isn't like Milgram type. Mm -hmm. So it's not that extreme. But you have specifically used this type of methodology of someone thinking that they might be harming someone Mm -hmm. else. And specifically, you looked at the importance of being able to see someone's eyes and guilt being Mm -hmm. read in, Mm -hmm. in the eyes, which I think is something intuitively that makes sense because we think of like when someone's guilty, maybe they avert their Mm. gaze from you. So could you talk a little bit about that 2017 paper, your methodology and why you wanted to look at it through the lens of gaze? Yeah, that's actually a a great question. So some of the emotion scientists and theorists, they argue or they propose that social emotions, or sometimes they call that cognitive emotions or higher level, higher order emotions, they believe that those emotions do not have a corresponding bodily manifestation or bodily response Mm -hmm. as compared to more basic emotion like Mm -hmm. fear and anger. But 
as you said, we all have the intuition that when we lie to our partner or when we do something wrong, we tend to avoid looking directly at the other person's eye. So how to reconcile this discrepancy between our intuition and the emotion theorist? So at that time, we think that one possibility is that most of the previous studies that study guilt, the way they elicit guilt in the participant does not allow for interpersonal interaction. And those bodily manifestation or expression of guilt may only be salient in that interpersonal mm -hmm. situation. So if you mm -hmm. ask a participant just to read a vignette and imagine themselves in that situation, there's no way for them to express uh, and no one is looking at them. So we thought that to elicit and measure a bodily manifestation of guilt is critical to put the participant in a social interactive context. So for that purpose, we develop a a, a semi-interactive or quasi-interactive yeah. task where we actually use a confederate or a trained actor to serve as our participant's partner. So in this task, the participant and their partner interact in a cognitive task and we manipulate participants' responsibility in harming or causing harm to the partner. So both of them need to respond to or estimate a number of dots on the screen, and they need to estimate the number of dots, which is very difficult. So a failure in, the, in this task will cause an electric shocks to the partner. So this is an interpersonal harm. And in order to create this kind of social interactive contact, face-to-face -face contact, we have the participant watch the other person's face in a video. The videos are pre-recorded where the other person is actually receiving electric shocks. However, we told the participant that what you are looking is the person mm -hmm. in real time. So let's say if you are the participant and you make an error in the task, now your partner will receive a, a one minute long electric stimulation. Your task now is to watch that person on your computer screen. Mm -hmm. So. So this way would create a simulation of face-to-face -face interaction. So to, to answer our question, we have two, two hypotheses. The one is the more responsible you are for causing harm to another person, of course, you're, you will feel more guilty. And at the same time, or as a consequence, you will try to avoid looking directly at your victim's eye, try to avoid direct eye contact with your victim. And the second hypothesis is that the reason or the cause of that eye gaze avoidance is that making direct eye contact with your victim will make the transgressor uncomfortable. In other words, that will elicit higher emotional arousal in the transgressor. So to answer that question or to test those two hypotheses, we design two studies or we design study in two steps. In the first study, our goal is to first demonstrate whether transgressors indeed avoid eye contact when they cause harm to the victim or the partner. So to do that, we use eye tracker to record where the participant is looking at when they look at the other person's face, when the other person is experiencing pain. So we divide the other person's face into several areas of interest. So for example, eye region, nose region, mouth region, and so on. 
And we specifically look at the, the fixation duration and dwell time. So how long the participant fix it in each of the area of interest, like eyes, nose, mouth, and so on. And we have two conditions here. So as I mentioned, we manipulate participant responsibility in causing the harm. So in the guilt condition, we give the participant the feedback that their mistake caused the pain to the other person. And in the control condition, we told the participants that the other person's own mistake caused their pain. So in both conditions, this is important, in both conditions, the participant will look at exactly the same video. So the visual input is the same, but the only difference is the participant's responsibility in causing the pain. So we can claim that any difference is attributable to participants' responsibility. So what we found is that when the participants are more responsible to the other person's harm, they tend to look down in the nose region compared to in the control condition. In the control condition, participants, most of the time, they look at the other person's eyes, which is typical in a real-time social interaction. But when they are responsible for the other person's harm, they fix it on the victim's nose instead of eyes. So the first step we demonstrate, indeed, when you are responsible for someone's harm, you tend to avoid looking directly at the other person's eye. So why is that? So in the second study, we want to address the underlying causes. So this time, instead of asking the participant to freely look at the other person's face in the video, we ask them to fix it either on the participant's eye region, that's the eye group, and for another group, we ask them to fix it on the victim's nose so that they, they, don't, they don't look at the, the other person's eye. So our prediction is if looking at the victim's eye region when you are responsible for the other person's harm will cause higher emotional arousal, then we should observe higher physiological response when the participants are looking at the other person's eye when they cause harm to the other person. So... That's exactly what we found. So for the I group participant, when they are responsible for the other person's harm, their skin conductance response, which is a physiological indicator of emotional arousal, was significantly higher compared to the condition where they're not responsible. And skin conductance is just basically measuring their sweat. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. It's, a, it's a classic indicator of emotional arousal yeah. in affective science. But for the group of participants who were asked to fix it on the other person's nose, there's no such difference between condition, which confirm our hypothesis that when you are responsible for someone's harm, looking at the other person's eye will cause stronger emotional arousal, mm -hmm. which may cause the participants, when they are allowed to mm -hmm. freely view the other person's face, they tend to look away from the eye to avoid this arousal. Mm. That's super interesting. So is the interpretation of these findings, do you think that it's that these participants are trying to avoid feeling more guilty? Or what is your interpretation of that increased arousal? Hmm. That's an interesting question. So, so we don't know based on that study mm -hmm. alone. So we don't, we don't know how the participant interpret that arousal. Will that arousal be directly translated into guilt feeling mm -hmm. or they translate into fear of being blamed? That's possible. We don't, we don't directly measure their subjective experience when they are looking at the other person's mm -hmm. 
AI region. So we don't know. So it will be an interesting next step to, for example, monitoring not only their physiological response, but also their brain activation pattern, mm. which may give us more information of what the subjective experience may be when they are interacting with their victim. So one of the the things that I really love most about some Hongbo's work is that he brings out and highlights this idea of the importance of gaze and of eye contact. And it's something that is at once very obvious because we do it all the time, but is something that I personally never really think about. But it's really important for a lot of different processes. So there's research that shows that direct eye contact is associated with how credible you are, speaking of guilt. So how genuine you are. And when someone holds our gaze, we tend to read it as transparency because it means that someone is willing to kind of lock eyes with you. But I just really liked how Hongbo looked at that in both directions. So when you feel guilty, you're averting your gaze. And also when the eyes are covered, you are able to not feel as guilty because this is a really important thing. And so I was wondering like how you feel about eye contact personally. I was going to ask, do we know why it's the eyes? Because I guess it feels, oh, well, eyes are really special. Do we know why? Because it's a lot of facial features that, because that's how we get our information. One hypothesis is that before humans developed language, eye contact was basically a nonverbal cue. And I think there is quite a bit of research that shows that other apes are really good at following gaze as well. And we're really good at tracking where someone else is looking, which I think for a long time in AI was something that's really difficult. I'm assuming now in September of 2023 that that's not a problem anymore, but it took a really long time. And we're like really good at being able to tell. And you can tell when someone's looking like directly behind you versus right at you. So it Mm -hmm. seems like it's really evolved mechanism that maybe has its roots in pre-verbal communication. But it does seem to play this really important role in social bonding and developmental stages as well. How do I personally feel about eye contact? (laughs) Yeah, are you good at it? (laughs) I think so. It's something I don't think about. I guess I do notice sometimes if I'm meeting someone for the first time or if I have an important meeting or something like that, I guess I'm more aware of it, Mm. um, that this is playing... I don't know. I can't, the awareness of, oh, should I look away now or should I do this? But I feel like day to day with my friends, it's something that I don't think about at all. I usually don't think about it, but I definitely sometimes become aware of the fact that I shift my eyes around a lot. If I'm talking to someone, I usually don't look at them. I'm usually like looking up. And I know that because sometimes people will turn around (laughs) and be like, what are you looking at? I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. So I definitely feel aware of it. But now I'm not looking at Beth because I'm trying to think. And I think maybe this is just no evidence. Maybe it is because it's too intense for me to look in someone's eyes because and I need to think. So there's too like I can't put that cognitive processing into looking at your face because it's just too much for me. I know when I'm talking about some complicated mathsy thing. I have to look at the ground. So I feel like when I'm talking to my supervisor, I feel like I can't because I think you're right. I think all of my focus and cognitive effort has to go through working that out. Yeah, I don't know if there's research on intensity of the experience of looking at someone. And it, it feels like it does take practice to sustain 
eye contact for more than a few seconds. And I definitely notice when someone is really making eye contact. And I don't think I like it. (laughs) But that question of like, if someone goes overboard is also interesting because it's important for persuasion, for trust. But then if someone's holding your gaze for a little bit too long, then maybe you're like, something's fishy, like some, like, <laughs> something's off. you know, so maybe it's kind of an inverted U model system where if it's too much, then it's not good. And if it's too little, then it's weird as well. Yeah, I've also had the experience when someone's talking about a belief they hold really strongly that they don't mm-hmm. want to be changed. So basically like telling you how it is, I guess. Like they either look at you really full on. So it's like, oh my God, there's no nowhere to run. Or they don't look at you at all because they don't want to have your feedback. I don't know if you've experienced that, but that's how I feel when people are explaining to me something, like I guess lecturing me, I suppose. That's when I get the two cents. It's either, okay, Beth's eyes, I've got a complete focus and I'm just going to tell her this is how it is. Or I'm going to look at the ground because I'm telling her how it is, so I don't need her feedback on this situation. Oh, interesting. I've never noticed that. Do you think it's because some people are trying to convince you? So they're looking at you and other people are like, I'm going to share this with you, but I don't really want to engage about it. Yeah, maybe that is the difference. Yeah. But that's what I've noticed. They really are the window to the soul, I guess. You mentioned brain signatures of guilt, Mm -hmm. and you do have a paper that looks at this idea where you specifically use a multivariate approach. So I was wondering if you could discuss that finding and also talk a little bit about what multivariate imaging is and why it might have some advantages Mm -hmm. over univariate analyses. Yeah. So first of all, let's talk about what an analysis of neuroimaging data is. So as the name suggests, neuroimaging is a kind of image. So in image processing, in our digital picture, the digital picture consists of millions and millions of pixels. And each pixel is controlled by a number of parameters like luminance and color, right? And when those millions of pixels combine together in an organized way, you will see a, a meaningful picture from outside, right? So the same is true for our brain image. Our brain image, fMRI image, is a 3D image. It consists of millions and millions of 3D pixels or voxels in fMRI jargon. Each voxel contain fMRI signal that indicate the brain activation or neuroactivation at that specific location in the brain. So the more traditional analysis of fMRI signal, they look at the differences in the signals across condition, or they look at the correlation between activation strengths of each voxel with a psychological variable of interest. For example, participant's choice, reaction time, or something that the experiment manipulate on a trial-by-trial basis. So as far as I can see, there are two issues with this approach. So first, sometimes the information is not encoded as the strengths of signal. So we can take an analogy of, for example, the LED information board, right? So some of you may, may still have like a LED clock where, for example, two and five look different, but 
Hongo's drawing on the board for those of you who are listening to this in audio. Yeah, so so you can imagine like an old old school digital watch. The number two and number five has exactly the same number of LED lights. So if you measure the strength of the light, it's mm -hmm. exactly the same. Mm -hmm. But the information is completely different, and we can recognize that. So two and five mean different information. So it is also possible that in our brain, some of the psychological construct is not completely encoded as the strength of neural activation, but as a pattern of neural activation of a collection of neurons or voxels. So um, the more traditional approach cannot directly look at this kind of encoding, but multivariate pattern analysis is specialized to detect such information. And second issue is that most of the fMRI study that adopt these more traditional analyses, typically their analysis stop when they discover or they identify significant activations. So they don't test whether these activations or correlations can be generalized to a new sample of participant or to a new conceptually similar design. So it almost seems as if they create or they invent a tool, a measurement tool, but then they never apply that tool to a real world situation. So the multivariate approach aims to address this issue. There are many different ways of implementing multivariate pattern analysis, or MVPA for short, but essentially they all kind of based on pattern recognition algorithm, machine learning. So just use another analogy. So how did you recognize that the person sitting here is me, right? You may look at my eyes, my nose, my mouth, my ears, my skin tone, my hair, and so on. Each of these features may not give you a complete information of who I am, but a combination of all these different features give you a clear answer, make it possible for you to recognize or identify this person. So this, the same logic apply to image processing. So for example, how we train an AI system to recognize picture of cats versus picture of dog, right? So in a most widely used algorithm, supervised learning, we first provide the algorithm a number of training cases. Like we give them a thousand cat picture and a thousand dog pictures, and we give the algorithm the correct answer. And then the algorithm will assign weight to different features of the picture so that in the future, when we fit the system with a new unobserved case or unobserved picture, they will classify that picture either as cat or dog. So the same logic applied to MVPA. So for example, we use multiple voxels or sometimes even all the voxels in the brain as our training feature. And we tell the brain, okay, this is a trial where the participant experienced high guilt. And this is a trial when the participant experienced low guilt. Or it, put it another way, this is a condition where the participant are more responsible for someone else's harm. And this is a condition, this is a brain state where the participants are less responsible. So after fit into the system a, a number of training cases, the system will develop a classifier that when you enter a new participant's brain image, the system, if successful, the system will give you a pretty accurate prediction or classification of whether this new brain image corresponds to a high guilt state or a low guilt state.
So that's the logic of MAPA or brain signature. So in the paper that you mentioned, we, we developed such a brain-based signature of guilt. So we, again, for the fMRI study, we use a similar task as the eye tracking study that we talk about. So in the study, we manipulate participants' responsibility in harming another person. So there are there's conditions where the participants are more responsible for another person's harm, and there are conditions where the participants are less responsible. So we train a brain-based classifier to classify the brain state associated with high responsibility and low responsibility. So basically what we get, you can understand that as a, a brain-based measure or indicator of guilt state. Now, why is that important? How can we apply that brain signature? So as I mentioned, an analogy, so the brain-based signature can be understood as a thermometer of guilt. So the good thing about it is that you can apply this signature to almost any other brain image. And this brain-based signature will give you a number of how much guilt-related neurocognitive processes is going on in that specific brain state. So I want to pause here and provide an example on how we use that. So in a recent study from a group of researchers in the Netherlands, they are interested in how coercion from authority figures reduce your feeling of guilt. So this is a pretty classic finding in social psychology. Like if you do something wrong under the pressure of your supervisor or authority figure, people tend to feel less guilty because they attribute that responsibility to someone else. So this group of researchers designed a guilt-eliciting task incorporating a coercion from authority figure. So when they apply our brain-based guilt signature to their brain imaging data, they indeed found that under the coercion condition, of course, behaviorally participants report less guilt, but also more importantly, our brain-based signature also give less brain-based measure of guilt. So it seems that participants do not only report less guilt feeling, but their brain actually exhibit less guilt-related neurocognitive processes. So we've talked about these two kinds of physiological systems of guilt almost, so in the brain, and then also this idea of the importance of looking at people's eyes. So what are the applications that you see in this work outside of academia and outside of someone else using the neural signature that you created to look at how much guilt there might be in one of their studies? Mm -hmm. So one thing that I can think of, because guilt is related to many mental health conditions and mental health issues, for example, depression and social anxiety disorder, they all have guilt or psychopathy and conduct problem. Those mental health and psychiatric condition all has have guilt as a related feature. So I do think that a better understanding of the biological basis of guilt may help us understand mm -hmm. the bi biological basis of those mental health conditions and may in turn in help us design better interventions to help alleviate their suffering. So I wanted to go back to when we were talking about the first study and this idea of when someone is feeling guilty, maybe they have their gaze and that question that I kind of asked at the end about what is really going on there when they're trying to avert their gaze. Is it that we're trying to get rid of that feeling of guilt so that we don't have to deal with it? Or maybe is it that 
we don't feel like there's an avenue through which our guilt can be absolved. And so guilt typically in psychology, though it's, you know, debated and your paper plays a role in debating that, is often thought of as more of like an approach emotion in the sense that it serves to repair the damage that you may have caused. So as you mentioned, this idea of violating a value that you might hold. So it seems like when we do think about it, there's these two parts to the outcome of guilt. Mm -hmm. So either that maybe you're averting your gaze, Mm -hmm. I want to pretend I didn't do that, Mm -hmm. or that we might take action to actually repair what we've done. So you have a paper that looks at this kind of dual pathway of what could happen with guilt. So could you talk a little bit about that paper and how it came about and the methods? Sure. I think this is a great point. Emotions, especially social emotions, are a complex phenomenon. So I think it's a bit oversimplified to assign like mm-hmm. a, a specific behavioral motivation to an emotion, like say, guilt motivate com- compensation and approach, shame motivate avoidance. So it's very likely that the link between an emotion experience and behavioral motivations are more complex than we thought. So again, I want to use my one of my own examples. So I remember like a few months ago when I drove in a parking lot, I didn't see a group of cyclists. So I make a right turn, almost hit some, hit them. Mm-hmm. Of course, I, I didn't hit mm-hmm. them. So I tried to escape that encounter as fast as I can. So mm. although I feel really bad for my behavior, I also feel afraid of confrontation. I feel afraid of being blamed or being accused of by those cyclists who apparently is very angry. So that's an example of that one emotional experience may give rise to multiple mixed motivation. So in the paper that you you referred to, we designed a task to specifically look at how approach and avoidance motivations compete in a transgressor after an interpersonal transgression. So our overarching hypothesis is that both approach and avoidance motivation coexist in the transgressor following transgression. And what specific action the transgressor takes depending on the competition of these two motivations. Mm-hmm. So more specifically, it's an extension of the eye tracking study that we talked about earlier. But here we have more sophisticated experiment design. So instead of having confederates who serve as a partner, this time we recruit real participants. Each time, each session, we have 14 to 16 participants in a big computer room. They will then be randomly assigned to two roles. One role is a transgressor role, and the other role is a victim role. And then during the task, each transgressor participant and each victim participant will be randomly paired on each trial. So they are not interacting with the same person during the entire task. So they will have different partners. The task is, again, an irrelevant cognitive task. So that their goal, so they will see a number of bars on the screen. Some mm-hmm. of the bars are tilted 45 degrees, some of the bars are 90 degrees, or some of them are zero degree. Their task is to find a unique oriented bar. So it's a very classic visual attention task. However, we use an algorithm to calibrate the difficulty of the task so that each participant have roughly 60% accuracy rate, and we give them real feedback. So it's unlike in the first uh, eye tracking study that we talked about. In that uh, earlier study, we give them predefined feedback. 
So it's not reflecting the participant's actual performance. But here we give them real feedback, but we use a self-adaptive algorithm to control for their accuracy. So again, on each trial, there are two people, right? One transgressor participant, which is our focus, and one victim participant. And then the rule is when both of them make a correct answer, then there, there will be no punishment. But when either of them or both of them fail or made an, an error in the task, in the estimation, the victim participant will lose a certain amount of money. So that is a monetary loss or monetary harm. The participant will not lose money in that sense. So when these happen, so when the victim had to experience a, a monetary loss, the transgressor participant is provided with two options, a binary choice. Each choice contains two attributes. One is the amount of monetary compensation to the victim. And the other attribute is the probability of engaging in a face-to-face -face Zoom, basically a Zoom meeting with the victim, although a very short five-second Zoom meeting. Our hypothesis is that the participant at the same time, they have a motivation to compensate or to benefit the victim. They want to help the victim to regain some of their loss. But on the other hand, they also want to avoid direct like face-to-face -face contact with that person to either avoid feeling guilt or shame, embarrassment, or being frowned upon. So we systematically manipulate the amount of monetary compensation and the probability of social contact such that the participants always face a dilemma. So they cannot fulfill both motivation at the same time. So they have to make a trade-off. So in the option where they give more compensation, it also associates with higher probability of looking at that person face-to-face. -face. So they have to make a trade-off between these two motivations so that these two motivations compete in the transgressor's mind following the transgression. So if they're given an option to give more money, then they're more likely to also see the other player. Correct. So for most of the participants, I don't want to go into too much detail, but for most of the participants, higher compensation is associated with higher likelihood of looking at the other person face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. Because most of the participants want to compensate the victim, but also want to avoid looking at that person directly. So these, this combination pose a trade-off. So they, they can either fulfill the approach motivation by selecting the option with more money, but that option will also have higher probability of face-to-face -face social interaction. So they cannot fulfill the avoidance motivation at the same time. So these will kind of encourage them to make a trade-off between these two motivations. Did the other player know those contingencies as well? So would they know that over the course of different trials, would they know that one person maybe was offered to just give them five cents and that it's not up to the other player themselves to determine how much money that they're giving them. Correct. So the other person, the victim participant, mm -hmm. they would they would not know how much the participants actually chose until the end of the task. Mm -hmm. So that we don't we don't want the transgressor participant to like communicate their right. apology through the choice. Mm, okay. So, so there's no kind of point because when I was listening to it, I was thinking maybe if they're giving them a lot of money, then they're like, mm -hmm. you're welcome. Yeah. You know? so, so we avoid that. And the victim participant also do not know 
from mm. which two options the participant. So、I、let's、see. say they get ten dollar,、mm-hmm. so but maybe the other option has twenty dollar.、Mm-hmm. Maybe the other per- option has one dollar.、Mm-hmm. So they don't know the context.、Mm-hmm. So we we designed the tax to avoid this kind of communication. But that's a、mm-hmm. great point. Like communication is real, like in our everyday social interaction.、Mm-hmm. So it's definitely like a, a, a interesting and important question for future study, like how、mm-hmm. transgressor and victim communicate.、Mm-hmm. Sometimes communication may help. Restore relationship.、Mm, interesting. Yeah. So, what do people tend to do? Because cynically, I would have imagined that if the transgressor participant knows that the person that they've harmed will not actually get any immediate feedback,、mm. that the transgressor is trying to repair the relationship,、mm. I would have thought that they would just not do that approach behavior at any point. So that intuition is, is really important, right? So. Given that intuition, we do observe the participant, even in that circumstance, will try to maximize compensation or try to avoid social contact, depending on their responsibility.、Mm-hmm. So remember, on top of the binary choice, we also have conditions. So we include three or four conditions of where the participant have different responsibility. Right. So、mm-hmm. when both of them make a correct、uh, response, then there's no harm. So、right. that's filler trials. In all the other three possibilities, the transgressor participants are most responsible when they are the only person who made the wrong、right. answer, but their victim participant make a correct answer. They are less responsible when both of them made the incorrect、mm-hmm. response, and they are least responsible when they make the correct answer, but the victim themselves themselves make a wrong answer. But they always get that choice of whether to give. They always get that choice. So we see how responsibility modulate the trade off. So that's what we observe. That's the interesting part. So we observe that as the participant's responsibility increases, the weight that the participant plays on avoidance increases. So the more responsible you are, the more you try to avoid direct social contact with your victim.、Hmm. Which means, in this case, the less compensation they're getting. Le- less compensation because these two are not. You can't、uh, achieve them both. So in in the most responsible condition, the participant even sacrifice the opportunity to compensate to avoid、right. uh, seeing that person directly.、Mm-hmm. How do you integrate that with this general idea of guilt as a more repairing emotion?、Mm-hmm. If you're seeing that actually the more guilty people feel, the more they're trying to avoid the situation. Yeah. So I I think it's important to take into account the temporal scale.、Mm-hmm. So. Maybe at the immediate aftermath of transgression, our priority is to protect ourselves from attack, from revenge, and so on, or from bad feelings. But once, for example, more deliberation, moral consideration kick in, we may reverse our initial response. So back to my story, I realize what I did is wrong. So after I drove like twenty feet, I I park my car and go back and check. Whether those cyclists are doing okay? Oh, you did. Oh yeah. Oh, I love that you gave us that cliffhanger. <laughs> you can finish the story now. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, back to our study.、Uh-huh. One of the prior study that inspired our study is one by Professor David Amodio, where they designed an EEG study to look at the temporal dynamics of guilt response. So,、mm-hmm. let's say when you say or behave in a racist manner, maybe the immediate response is. Avoidance, but then later, when more deliberative cognitive process kick in, you will reverse your initial response. So, although our study does not have that long-term 
measure of participants' tendency, we do believe that when you look at people's response at different time scale, you may see different patterns,、mm. different behavioral reactions.、Mm. That's really interesting. So, kind of going back to this question of like what emotions are, then do you think that this is kind of like the time scale of something that? Is guilt so? Guilt just has this kind of shape of maybe leading you to withdraw, but then leading you to want to repair things. Or do you think that is there a higher intensity of guilt at the very beginning, or is there something else going on? Or do you think this question actually doesn't make sense because maybe you take a more constructionist view of these types of emotions? So I, I, I do think this is a valid question.、Mm-hmm. Like, what are the competing components? Right.、Mm-hmm. So in our paper, we. Although we want to say that this is a, a aftermath of guilt, but we can't say for sure、mm-hmm. because many other emotions are involved as well. So,、mm-hmm. for example, we do see that embarrassment also has a significant effects across condition. So, it's possible that transgressor participants, when they、mm-hmm. prioritize avoidance, they are trying to avoid feeling embarrassed,、mm-hmm. like being looked upon by their victim. So, it's possible that multiple Emotion are activated at the same time, but each of these emotion may have a different time scale. So, for example, empathy and compassion may also activate it. Clearly, in my examples, I do have that component, and maybe、right. the initial fear come down, and those other more positive、uh, pro-social emotion become relatively stronger, and that will change my behavioral motivation. I. Was at a dinner party with lawyers, and we we're talking about this case that's going on in Australia, where this people have died from eating mushrooms, and they don't know if the woman killed them or what was going on.、And、what do you mean was, killed? Who's them? Who'd she kill? Who's the woman? <laughs> she fed them the mushrooms. Who's she? <laughs> she was their ex-daughter-in-law, and she had everyone over for this dinner party. Where she, they were talking about the divorce or something, and like making some sort of amends, and then everyone died from eating this mushroom pie. And she said, like, including、oh, her, no, but she was like, oh, I just was fine for some reason, and it's all like, oh, if she did it or not. And everyone was interpreting how she was behaving, if it's guilty or not. And I said, oh, well, it's really interesting you say that because I was listening to Kongbro's episode, and he makes a really good point that you know emotional. Processes are complicated, so it's not a one-to-one mapping. So if you're guilty, you won't behave in a certain way. So I don't know if we can really interpret her behavior as like, oh yes, she did it, or yes, she did it, because it's a tra- traumatic experience anyway. And one of the barristers there was like, oh my god, yeah, that's exactly one of the big problems in the law, and that's why we tell people when they're charged with something not to speak, because people will make this assumption on what they say and do, but because they're usually in a traumatic experience, they can behave really weirdly, and it's nothing to do with guilt. But because we want to be like, oh, this meant they they did this, but they were saying in the law you have to learn that that's not at all how people work. Yeah, that's true. I kind of feel like the question of interpreting whether or not someone is guilty or someone is feeling some kind of emotion or did or didn't do something. I think. If you already have a preconceived notion of if that person is guilty, that probably is going to influence what you're seeing. And it reminds me of people who talk about being put in insane asylums or told that they're crazy, and then there's no way to get out of that because no matter what you、yeah. say, you're not going to be able to prove that you're of sound mind. I feel like that happens a lot, also online with 
I mean, my example is that everyone, just to take a break from the science, is that I feel like everyone has an opinion on Justin Bieber and Hailey Bieber's relationship. And literally, they could be like standing in a supermarket and people be like, he hates her. I don't know if I have an opinion on it. <laughs> on the internet. Uh, okay, internet right, 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 right. But I feel like, like you're saying, it's really hard to infer what people are feeling because you can say, oh, this signifies this when maybe someone's just sitting there minding their own business, thinking about something completely different. I think that's definitely a dangerous game. But I think Hongbo's point also about the fact that these different types of emotions like guilt or that guilt has two separate like kind of action tendencies. Um, so when you're actually when we're, we've confirmed that you're feeling that emotion, um, that you can have these like two types of ways of reacting, I think was really interesting. And I think this is kind of like a point that maybe could be raised about anything, but I feel like in what he was talking about with his study and especially at the very end where he talked about like those temporal dynamics of what happens like when you're given the opportunity to act in a certain way. And I think that study that he talked about, which was an Emodio study that looked at when people are given the opportunity to make amends versus not. But like the thing that I was wondering is given that guilt and like feeling those emotions is aversive and we're so used to not being in aversive states now that you're able to distract yourself, I wonder if people are now more likely to avoid those types of feelings because it's so easy to just be like, that's not happening, la la la. I'm going to go on the internet and watch a bunch of TikToks or watch a TV show and pretend that that didn't just happen. So I don't know. I kind of wonder about like dynamics in terms of whether things are changing and whether culturally an expression of guilt can kind of evolve over time. So you mean like maybe how we express guilt, I don't know, 50 years ago is different to how we express it now? Yeah. And there's there's some research that shows that there's differences between cultures that are more likely to express guilt versus express shame. So the stereotypical kind of distinction is collectivistic cultures, which are often East Asian cultures versus individualistic cultures, which is often Western Europe and North America. And in Western Europe and North America, it's more likely that you would express feelings of guilt because it's like about feeling that you personally, as Hongbo said, didn't live up to your own expectations. Whereas in those other cultures, it's really more shame based society. So it's not about you not living up to your expectations. It's about you failing to meet society's expectations and bringing shame on yourself or your family and more withdrawal. But I think the increased emphasis on shame in collectivistic cultures has to do with the way that different cultures see the self. So the self in individualistic cultures is bounded. So I might see myself as super close to Beth, but if I picture who I am, I close that circle of who I am around myself. And Beth might be really close to me. She might be like touching my circle, but she's not inside the circle. But for other types of cultures, so in collectivistic cultures, that is different. So Beth, because she's really close to me, she might actually enter into my own self-concept. So I might not see myself as completely bounded. I would see who I am as permeable with the people that I love because they really influence who I am. And so because of that, those societal roles and relational roles are extremely important in collectivistic cultures. And shame then tends to be more prevalent because if you do something wrong, then it's not just about you having done something wrong as an individual that you can repair. It's about 
you dishonoring your entire family or it going beyond this personal error because whatever you do isn't personal because you, your identities are wrapped into one another in that way. And can you explain what the difference between guilt and shame is? Because I, when you said that, I was like, oh, and then I realized I, I don't really know what the difference would be. So in keeping with thinking about it in terms of this individualistic versus collectivistic way of thinking about it, both of the emotions are in the category of self-conscious emotions. And both of them do share the fact that they arise from you having done something wrong. But the focus of guilt is typically a behavior or an action where you're like, I just did something bad. Whereas shame, sometimes people talk about it as a more global emotion. So it's not about a specific action often, but it's more about you as a person. So it extends beyond, I need to make amends for this thing. It's also like, I'm a bad person. You should throw rocks at me in, in the square of the city or whatever. And there's some evidence, though... It's mixed and, and obviously Hongbo's research contributes to this, but that shame is more linked to withdrawal. So shame is more linked to being like, I'm going to hide. I don't want to, to put myself out there because everyone knows that I not only did something wrong, but I'm a bad person because of it. Whereas guilt might motivate you to take action to repair that situation. But again, as Hongbo said, there might be cases in which if you don't have the opportunity to easily express your desire to make amends or try to make amends, then that emotion might lead to actually more withdrawal, just like shame does. I think that makes sense, though, the difference in withdrawal, because if it's just based on an action, you can fix that or change that or, or do something like that. Whereas if it's, yeah, this whole image of self is wrong, I mean, that's harder to overcome, I guess, and change. And it was interesting because also after I listened to the episode, I was speaking to some people about it and they're like, oh, well, do you think guilt is a good thing? Like, did you guys discuss whether guilt is good or not and I was thinking about it I don't know I initially I was like yeah it's good and then like wait is it good and then I felt confused but I don't know if you have an opinion as someone who is doing some emotions research I think it's almost impossible to categorize an emotion as good or bad because I mean from evolutionary perspectives and just even if you're not taking the evolutionary perspective it's clear that emotions are really a signal. So they're information that you're taking in that allows you to kind of orient your attention to what you might need to chase in the environment to get a reward or something that you might need to do to mitigate some kind of threat or cost that you're encountering. So I think guilt is really important because it's a signal to us that we've done something wrong. And I think it's important because that type of emotion can help you repair that situation. Also, it creates this negative feeling, right, that you want to avoid. So hopefully that means also that as you're learning from the experience, you won't do that again. So I think that guilt is really important, but obviously, like anything, it can get taken too far. People can be guilted into like the wrong things or guilted into situations that they shouldn't feel guilty in. Of course, one of the things that I think about is women feeling a lot of shame and guilt around sex and being able to express that part of themselves in a different way than men. So I think that it can be positive or negative. But I think for me, when I think about emotions, it's always as emotions telling you something and providing you information that you need. So I'd say that it can be both. Yeah, because I was imagining, well, if we lived in a society where no one felt any guilt, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it then goes back to what other things deter people from doing the wrong thing or messing up. I guess how important is that feeling? 
from stopping people from doing the wrong thing. And if we had a society without guilt, what would that look like? And I think, unfortunately, it could maybe look like people. I don't, I don't know. But then I always obviously go back to like, I don't think people want to hurt people just anyway. <laughs> so we don't. But that's just the best perspective. That's probably not. But I think guilt is almost that mechanism in the Beth perspective, is that mechanism that allows people to not hurt people. If you believe that that people are built to be kind to each other, I think it's kind of like an alarm bell that goes off where you're like, oh, that wasn't right. So one big next step in the lab along the line of social emotion is we want to understand more the computation basis of social emotion, how those emotions arise in social relationship and how culture modulates that computation process. So there's an influential theory of morality, which suggests that our moral judgment of an action depends on whether that action fulfill or fail to fulfill a bunch of cooperative functions of that relationship. So let's say seeing someone cry and walk away may seem really bad in a romantic partner relationship, but may not seem that bad in a stranger relationship. So built upon these theoretical basis, we proposed that social emotions may arise from this match or mismatch of cooperative functions. So back to the example of seeing someone cry and walk away, let's say if you were the romantic partner of that person, you will feel extremely angry and sad. But if you were a stranger to that person, you may feel a little bit sad, but you may think that's kind of understandable. So you will not experience strong social emotions. So that's studying social emotion in this way will also help us understand the variations in social emotions in different cultures. So those cultures may have different expectations of relationship, right? So in some cultures, even strangers should serve a care function, for example. Strangers should take care of each other. So maybe in those cultures, seeing a stranger cry and walk away will elicit stronger negative emotions. So that's one direction of our lab. Another direction that we're excited about is more kind of applying social emotion, especially guilt, to understand relationship satisfaction. For example, what's the role of guilt in promoting equality in the division of household work, for example, between different genders, whether fulfilling and fail to fulfill expectation of your partners or your parents give rise to guilt, for example, and whether that guilt feelings will motivate you to better fulfill expectations in your relationship and whether that contribute to relationship satisfaction and well-being. Cool. One final question. This is because in some of the work that you're talking about, you are also talking about these more long-term relationships. So I think all of the studies that we talked about today were just between strangers. So in that way, I was wondering also because most of the things that we've talked about today are things that elicit guilt, but is there any role in someone who's more likely to just be prone to feeling guilt? And is that something that you want to look at, for example, in the division of household labor stuff? Right. So you mentioned a really important point. So for most of the social emotions, we can either understand that as an emotional episode, like at the moment I feel 
gratitude or guilt. But we can also understand that as a more stable trait. So I'm a person who is more generally sensitive to guilt or sensitive to shame, or we can say this is a person of, of a very high sense of shame. So in one of our recent study, we look at the relationship between guilt promise or more stable trait guilt, how that is related to immoral behavior, like taking corruption, taking bribe. We do find that people with a higher guilt promise are engaged in less corruptive behavior. And more specifically, we found a pathway that explained the relationship between guilt promise and less corruptive behavior, which is a concern for other people's harm. So when a corrupted behavior have a more salient and explicit victim, people with high guilt promise or guilt trait are less likely to engage in corrupted behavior. Hmm. That's interesting. What if there is no, are people able to kind of blind themselves to a potential victim if they're just maybe taking a bribe and not thinking about the fact that, or it's not salient to them that maybe them taking that money makes those funds not available for right. someone who might need So them. in most of our moral situations, the situations are ambiguous. Right. And also like there's always a, a bigger room for interpretation right. of, for mm-hmm. self like serving interpretation. Yeah. So in our study, we try to make that difference as large as possible. So we have a VNS where the victim is extremely salient. So let's say you take a bribe, so you you grab, you grab money from a charitable fund so that children are starving. But in another more ambiguous situation, you bribe an examiner who will then give you an A. So without a curve, this may not directly harm other people, but it's more like violating a moral code. So we do find a difference in these two situations. So participants in who, who read the charitable donation vignettes, we see stronger correlation between their trait guilt or guilt promise and reduction in corruptive behavior. Mm, interesting. So much to talk about. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I feel like there was so much more we could discuss and so much exciting stuff happening in the lab. Thank you. And I want to stress that we didn't even touch on most of the morality stuff, most mm-hmm. of the gratitude stuff. So if you're interested in Hongbo's work in the lab, please check out the website. And I'm grateful to have had you on the show. And I'm very grateful that mm-hmm. I get to be part of the lab. So. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> but thank you for having me. Thank you to Dr. Hongbo Yu for joining us this episode. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Thank you.